0: Welcome to Open Mic. As you know, we have interviewed five exonerees on this show, and today is our sixth. But this one's a little bit different. Jeffrey Deskovic was convicted of rape and murder at 16 years old. He spent 16 years in prison when new DNA evidence was discovered to prove who actually committed that crime. Barry Sheck. And the innocence project in new york helped him get out of prison and since getting out of prison over 16 years ago he has gone to law school he has set up a foundation he has helped free nine other people for various reasons this interview is amazing uh, jeffrey deskovic uh, blew my mind um, he's got a documentary about him he's got lots of stuff that you can get into which will all be listed here and uh, you're not gonna wanna miss this interview. So here we go. You never know who you're going to see. Be one guy one on one my whole career. What you're going to hear. Not got a lot of desperate people in the city. Or what they've got to say.
1: When you can take people inside of a crime.
0: That's what you're gonna hear on my podcast, Open Mic. Find it where you find your podcasts. So Jeff, you were a 16 year old high school student and you were arrested for rape and murder. Can you describe what that was like?
1: Yeah, I would say it was it was uh, it was surreal. I couldn't, you know, I never the idea of being of being arrested for something that you didn't do was a foreign concept to me, you know, as a sixteen-year-old.
0: What kind of kid were you? Describe what kind of kid were you at sixteen?
1: Well, after school, I mean, I was kind of like the life of the party. I mean, whatever. Sporting activity I would suggest would be what you know the kids in the area would play. we play stickball, kickball, ride bikes, basketball, monopoly, video games, movies, that kind of thing. But uh, on the other hand, uh, in school, you know, I was quiet. I was to myself, and you know, I didn't quite fit in, and so that led to, um, you know, and so I, I not fitting not fitting in. I mean, I was kind of like on the fringes of the of the high school uh, society.
0: And why did the police? you know target you why 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 do you think they targeted you
1: uh well there was three there was three factors uh so first of all the um, police interviewed a lot of students so first of all the poli- uh first of all the um um <clears throat> the police interviewed a lot of students from the high school and some of them told the police that they might want to talk to me because i didn't fit in Okay, so the, uh, that was how they first got uh, attracted to me. A uh, next thing after that was that they uh, they, um, they thought they police argued that I was since sens- I was sentimental as a kid. I was sentimental as a kid, and this was my first brush with death. And they thought that my uh, that my emotional reaction to to a classmate of mine who I barely knew but was in two of my classes a freshman, one as a sophomore. That that was some kind of indication that I was uh, sorry for what I had done, and then a third thing was they got a psychological profile from the NYPD, which purported to ex- which purported to have the psychological characteristics of what the actual perpetrator would be like, and I had the misfortune of matching that uh, of matching that description.
0: So the person who was raped and killed was a classmate of yours? Yes, and. That, I mean, you know, I mean, the way you described those, those three things, that could have been anybody. That could have been me. That could have, you know, that could have been anybody that is it. So, so they, they focused on you, they arrested you. And, and we, we know now, I mean, the punchline is you didn't do it. There was no way you could have done it, but yet there I'm reading that there's some kind of confession, uh, that you gave yeah. while you were in custody. Um, tell me about
1: that. Yeah, sure. So, For about six weeks, the police played this cat and mouse game with me, in which half the time they would speak to me as if I was a suspect, and the other half the time they would pretend like they needed my help to solve the crime. You know, they would say things like, the kids won't talk freely around us, but they will around you. Let us know if you hear any rumors. Um, Stop in from time to time. They would ask me opinion questions and congratulate me that my opinion was correct. They played the good cop bad cop r- routine and that directly intersected with my background I mean my father was never involved in my life in any way and I began to look up to the officer who was pretending to be my friend as a father figure in addition to that I mean before I was a teenager the career I wanted to have when I was a cop was uh, what before what I, the career I wanted to have before I was a teenager was to was to be a cop and you know those tactics of you know talking to me as if I would you know Jeff is the junior detective helper theme you know played played into that uh so be uh, so um, eventually they got me to agree to take a polygraph test by telling me that some new information had come in from from the uh had come into their file and they wanted to share that with me but i would have to first take and pass a polygraph test so the next day instead of going to school i instead went to the high school for the test because it was a school day you know, um, my mother and grandmother thought that I was in school. They did not call around looking for me. And they drove me to Brewster. They took me from Peekskill, which is in Westchester County, New York. They took me to Brewster, Putnam County. So about 40 minutes away by car. You know, so I meant I wasn't able to leave anymore on my own. I was dependent upon the police and uh I didn't have an attorney present. I wasn't given anything to eat the entire time I was there. They gave me countless cups of coffee to get me nervous. Then I was wired up to a polygraph test, a polygraph machine, and then they launched into their third-degree tactics. So they raised their voice at me, they um, uh, invaded my personal space, they kept asking me the same questions over and over again, and uh, my fear increased in proportion to the time. They kept that up for six and a half to seven hours, and so through doing threats and false promises, and you know, eventually I, uh, you know, I'm telling me that I wasn't going to be uh, arrested. You know, they just tell them what you want, you go home. And so eventually uh, they broke me. And by the time it was all over, I collapsed in the, in the floor into a fetal position, crying uncontrollably.
0: Did they say you failed the polygraph exams?
1: They did. They, they did. They started with that. And then they, uh, and then he said, then they, they started with, they told me I failed the test. And then they told me, um, um. What do you mean you didn't do it just tell us you know well that's what they said they said they said uh, what do you mean you didn't do it you just told us through the test results that you did we just want you to verbally confirm it and that's when the officer had been pretending to be my friend he came in the room and told me that the other officers were going to harm me but that I, I, they, he had been holding them off but couldn't do so any longer that i had to help myself then he added that uh if uh, if i told them just told them what they want to hear i could go home that i was not going to be arrested so being young naive frightened 16 years old i wasn't thinking about the long term i was just being concerned my own safety in the moment and uh, i made up a story based upon the information they gave me in the course of interrogation
0: i mean that i mean that is it, it, it's crazy and you know, after the fact, did you get the the, the readouts of these tests, and you, did you get proof that you didn't fail them?
1: No, because he claimed the polygraphist claimed that the charts came up missing, and that you know, so no one's ever able to uh, independently review the charts.
0: I mean, okay, so 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 you were arrested right after you gave this, you know, non yes. uh, uh confession. Yes. And, and, uh, I mean, this is, I mean, listen, I, 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 I know I'm gonna be all over the place because I, I, you know, you're supposed to tell a story, but you know, you're a smart guy. You, you went to law school, you're now helping people. I mean, looking back on that, I, I'm, you know, this is fascinating, but looking back on that confession that you gave and made up an answer, can you now see why people... Because we hear about wrongful confessions all the time. Can you now just shed some light on how easy is that for people to... I mean, it happens. It happens.
1: Yeah, of course. yeah, it's been the cause of wrongful convictions, and 25% of the DNA proven wrongful convictions. And uh, not only have adults given coerced false confessions, but particularly vulnerable populations include um, people with mental health issues and uh, youth, which, you know, I was a youth. So, yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, you know, people can say that they would never confess to something they didn't do, but until you're actually being interrogated, you know, you're you're held, you know, in in, in isolation, you know, you deprive the food, they wear you down, and they're doing these psychological tactics that are designed to coerce you. I mean, and, and then you become in fear of your life, and then at the end, they, you know, dangle this carrot out and claim you're not going to be arrested. You latch on to that, and. You just say whatever you need to say just to get out of there. I mean no one is thinking about the long term. They're just being concerned with their safety in the moment. And, and was this all a videotape? No. There was no videotaped confession. There was no um, signed confession. There was, you know, it was it was, it was no audio or video. It was just the cop's word for it. So when they came to court, they left the threat and false promise out of their story. And now i
0: think there's laws in most states that they have to be videotaped correct
1: yes yeah some of the states some of the, yeah some of the states i'm not i'm not sure what the quantity, the quantity is if it's most or just some, so I, I just leave it at some as far as what i'll say
0: so for for sake of time i mean you 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 had a public defender
1: yes you were
0: tried by a jury yes and convicted yes and how bad was your public defender
1: oh he was terrible I mean, to be real quick about it, uh, you know, he um, rarely met with me when uh, when he would meet with me. I tried to explain to him that, uh, you know, what happened, I was innocent and what happened in the interrogation room. He was always shutting me up. One time he told me he didn't care if I was guilty or innocent. He never explained to the jury the significance, of the DNA not matching me. He never used that to argue that it proved that the confession was coerced and false. He never cross-examined the medical examiner who was committing fraud, who suddenly remembered he forgot to document findings that he had made six months after he supposedly made them. So he never cross-examined him. Uh, He 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 never should have represented me in the first place because of a conflict of interest in that the prosecution was claiming that another youth in the school uh, had a consensual sexual encounter with the victim. And that was the way they were answering the DNA not matching me. And, but the lawyer, but, He never set the proper evidentiary foundation for that. So the prosecutor never got a DNA sample from him. He never even called him as a witness. He just made the unsupported argument to the jury. Now on our end of it, because of this conflict of interest in that this other youth that the prosecutor was saying had slept with the victim, uh, was represented uh, by another member of uh, that public defender's office. It prevented the defense from asking him for a sample. It prevented the defense from calling him as a witness. And lastly, didn't decide if I was going to go with a jury trial or bench trial, my lawyer came to me one day and told me that the judge told him off the record to pick a jury because he didn't want to be responsible for finding me not guilty. My lawyer was supposed to put that on the record and ask the judge to recuse himself because, you know, it wasn't proper for him to limit my decision in that way. And it also suggests that the judge was feeling some public uh, uh, pressure. Wow,
0: what was the misconduct by the medical examiner? I mean, can you give a little bit more detailed on that?
1: Yeah, of course. Uh, one more thing on the lawyer. My lawyer also never—he never interviewed or called as a, a, a alibi. My—he uh, never called as a witness. My alibi I was actually playing well football. What happened uh, when yeah. it happened? But in terms of what the, what, in terms of the medical examiner. So when an autopsy is done, there's written and audio notes which are taken contemporaneously. His findings are made, and so it was only six months after doing that autopsy, uh, only after the DNA didn't match me that he suddenly claimed he suddenly remembered, right? This is six months later, hundreds of autopsies later, he claims that he remembered that he forgot to document medical evidence that he said showed the victim had been promiscuous. So in other words, to wrongfully convict me, they were willing to, you know, trash her reputation. But he specifically fabricated that in order to help the prosecutor get around the fact that the DNA didn't match me
0: unbelievable was there prosecutorial misconduct other than that or was that yeah no no that,
1: that well that was a big part of it but there was prosecutorial misconduct other than that so i mean one day before officially getting the dna test result from the from the fbi lab he rushed to the grand jury to indict me so he didn't have to present that and secondly that medical examiner had been complained of in neighboring counties by authorities so he was Moonlighting as as a defense expert also whichever way the money flowed is the way he testified the prosecutor was a You know was supposed to turn those complaints over to the defense and we could have used that to You know try to discredit the medical examiner. So that was another um, that was another aspect uh, of it
0: And you had a pretty famous prosecutor Uh,
1: well the I think what you're getting at you are referring to janine pirro. So the Carl Vergara was the DA at the time I was arrested. The trial prosecutor was George Boland, but Piro comes into the picture because she took office prior to my first appeal uh, being decided. So she was the one she kept the ball rolling against me. It was her office that was arguing that uh, I remember uh, they argued that a, a, a negative DNA test result was no insulation to a guilty verdict. Right. They argued, they argued, uh, they argued that one. Uh, and then um You know, they stopped me from getting DNA testing several times. Uh, Then when the court clerk uh, gave my lawyer the wrong information pertaining to the filing procedure in the um, habeas corpus uh, proceeding, it was uh, her office that argued that the court should simply rule that I was late without getting to my issues, which resulted in my being time barred. And then that decision was upheld in the next three courts, all all at the urging of uh, Jeanine Pirro. Unbelievable.
0: Unbelievable. Believable to hide the truth, uh, it, it, it's it's so maddening. So, you're how long was the jury trial? How many days was it?
1: Uh, I think it was about. Uh, I think it was about a week and a week and a half. I would estimate.
0: And you're incarcerated the whole time.
1: No, I, I was. I had gotten bailed out. I, oh, I got bailed out. out. Yes.
0: Okay, that's surprising.
1: Um, yeah, well, well, my, my, uh, my, my mother had a boyfriend that was a business person. So he was willing to, uh, he was willing to bail me out. Did, did you
0: recant your, I mean, did you recant the, uh, confession right away you tell your family and tell your lawyer yes. that right away?
1: Yeah. I recanted the confession. Yeah. Yeah. So to my, yeah, to my family, but every time I try to explain to the, to my public defender, that you know that, that was, you know, that was it was a that was a false confession. And, and he, he never wanted to hear from me on that. He 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 always shut me up. And I wanted to testify at the trial and explain to the jury, you know, why I confessed, but he wouldn't he wouldn't allow me to.
0: So the cops testified that you gave a confession and, and you didn't get on the stand and say the circumstances around the confession.
1: Correct. Yes. And the other thing is that the cops left the threat and false promise out of their story. So, in that type of scenario, the only way those facts would have made their way on the record would be if he had put me on the stand.
0: So, you're tried as an adult. You're convicted as uh, 16 years old. You're convicted. You're sentenced to 17 to 25 years.
1: Well, I, I would. So, I had been arrested when I was 16. I turned 17 before the trial started, and I got convicted, and I was given a 15 to life sentence, out of which I wound up serving 16 years because I lost seven appeals, and then I went to the parole board and I got turned down for parole, and which resulted in my doing an additional year prior to being exonerated.
0: So you're 17 years old, you go to prison. I see that you were in solitary confinement for the first 28 days.
1: Well, my last 28 days, yeah, I spent, well, not last. I did 28 days in solitary confinement uh, after in 1997. So that would have been like six years and I, I did 28 days in solitary, yeah.
0: I mean, how horrible was that? Was that the worst of it?
1: Yeah, that was uh, that was pretty bad because um, you know, I'm in prison wrongfully. I've already been in in prison like about six or seven years, and uh, I'm in solitary because I, you know, I d- defended myself against people that were coming to stab me because, as far as they were concerned, uh, you know, I was a rapist. And then while in solitary confinement, you know, for that, I got the news that the you know, I've lost in federal court because the court clerk gave my lawyer the wrong information on the filing procedure and the court simply ruled that I was late so that that was I think that was the lowest moment ever in the whole experience
0: I mean being in prison at 17 years old I mean how was that being you know you're so you're going in you're saying that people knew in the prison I, I saw in one of your in the documentary the Amazon prime that they were passing around leaflets so that the prison population would know that you were this terrible, you know, sex offender. I mean, yeah. that had to have been the scariest thing in the whole world.
1: It really was. It was. I mean, the the you know, just about the whole prison was hostile, and the ones who weren't didn't want to have anything to do with me anyway, just just for the politics of it. That was very it was very scary. I mean, you know, just prison in general is scary. I mean, it was you know, stabbings and cuttings every day and uh, lots of other violence and there was um, a lot of gang activity as well.
0: How did you get Barry Sheck's and the Innocence Project's attention to take a look at your case?
1: So uh, I had an invest, there was an investigator who, uh, who su- the investigator who suggested that I write to them looking for assistance, she lobbied them from outside of their organization and uh, and she got several other respected legal entities uh, to lobby them also, uh, and then I also got lucky that one of the intake workers, um, uh, you know, when they initially said no, the uh, intake worker presented, represented my case several times, coming up with different angles as to how the DNA could be used to constitute something new, and so that was how I got uh, their attention and got them to take the case.
0: So tell me about the DNA. Um it's a little confusing. So, um, you know, I know that you're, you said that your DNA was not on the scene, right? Uh, but what what was is that? What was the new evidence?
1: All right. So, the uh, the new evidence. All uh, right. So the DNA wasn't on the it wasn't my DNA on the scene, uh, but back then it was just the RFLP technology. So they were just comparing DNA uh, at a crime scene to a particular defendant. The technology advanced. Uh, so, in 1997-98, the DNA database was created, which uh, in which uh, enabled um, the, was to take the crime scene evidence and put it in the database, and it matched the actual person. So, I went from being able to say, it's not me, to it's not me, but it's him. Got it. So, at
0: trial, they knew it wasn't your DNA. Correct. But they argued around that, as you mentioned. Yes. But in what year? So, so, many years later, they were able to find... Um, I don't see the guy's name here. What was his Stephen name? Stephen Cunningham. And, and and I saw the interview of him. So it pointed to Stephen Cunningham. He had killed and raped another person. Um, and he eventually admitted to the crime that you were convicted of.
1: Right. Yeah, exactly. I mean, yeah, he raped and killed a victim in my case. Then he left free. because I was doing time for his crime, he killed a second victim three and a half years later. And when the DNA eventually matched him, he then confessed that he was the person who had uh, Murdered and raped the victim in my case. My case. What's that? Go ahead. I'm sorry. Finish. I was just going to say that you know all the charges against me were dismissed on actual innocence grounds, and he was arrested and convicted of the crime.
0: And in your in the documentary that Amazon Prime did called "Conviction," you talk at length about getting that news. Um, And I know it took several hours to kick in, but tell me about just tell my tell our audience about that experience
1: yeah so um so my my cell door opened and you know i stick my head out to see what they wanted and they they tell me uh, you know you have a visit and i ask them to double check because i'm not expecting a visitor and uh they double check and make sure they confirm i have a visitor so i'm running down there and i have my little visiting room shirt like everybody keeps like the, their sunday best shirt for, for when you you know make an appearance in the visiting room and I'm wondering like who who came to see me. so when I come inside the uh I go in the visiting room, this woman is waving at me. And, you know, and I, I nod at her, but like I don't recognize her. And I think that she's mistaking me from somebody else, or else maybe she remembers me from a different uh visiting room. So I asked the guard at the desk, you know, where's where's my uh wh- who came to see me? And she's and she looks at me like I'm crazy and points to the woman's waving at me. And, you know, she says, Well, don't you know who that is? So I don't want I don't want her to cancel the visit. So I said, Yeah, yeah, of course I do. And I just walk over there, and uh, the lady announced herself as my, as, uh, you know, as my as my attorney. And then she said to me, You know, the uh, the items have been tested. And I said, well, What are you What are you talking about? They're not supposed to be tested for another month. And she says, Yeah, they've been they've been tested. The DA pulled some strings, and it's been tested, and uh, the uh, the results match the actual perpetrator. Uh, you're going okay. home tomorrow. And I said, no, I'm not. And we went back and forth two or three times. And, um, and then we, I just had this state of mental paralysis where I, like, she literally sat there and held my hand for the next three, three and a half hours. And my mind was spinning and all these different thoughts were coming to my head and I was mentioning to them. And one thought had nothing to do with the other. And every now and then she would break in and say, are you ready to talk about tomorrow? And I would say, no, 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 look, look, just look, that's not happening, I'm not going to home, home tomorrow, keep that away from you, I don't wanna, I'm not entertaining that, okay? And eventually what made it real at the end, towards the end of the visit is she told me that, you know, there was almost time for the visiting room to be up and the, uh, the visit hours to be over and that they had to uh, obtain uh, uh, clothing clothing me, like a suit, shoes and do other stuff uh, with the media as far as prepping them. And that's really what, uh, that's what really made it real. Of course, a few minutes after that, a different fear popped in my mind, which was, well, something's going to happen between today and tomorrow, and the DA is going to change her mind, and I'm not going to go home at all. I'm just going to just like stay in here. I was afraid to hope at the end. In other I, words, that's, that's what I, I'm trying to do.
0: I don't blame you, and, and and but you did get out the next day.
1: I did. Yeah, I and, did.
0: And how was? I mean, the feeling. How do you describe that?
1: I would say it was surreal. In fact, my first words at the press conference were, um, is, is this really happening?
0: And in your family, how was your family for the 16 years? You mentioned that you didn't see your brother for the last 10 years or something. Yes, crazy that's around?
1: right. Yeah, in the last 10 years. Yeah, I didn't yeah. see him. Right.
0: <clears throat> you, know, you know, they probably, you know, they don't know if you're innocent and guilty. You get out, somebody confessed. I mean, did the did they coalesce around you? did they did they re-engage with you after all this?
1: Uh, not really. I mean, they 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 just kind of went back to living their life like they had before all this happened to me and even during I mean, if my I had I had several sets of aunts and uncles they they would visit, disappear for three years, visit, disappear for three years. You, know, you mentioned my brother my my mother was the only consistent visitor but in the last six years I was lucky if I saw her once every six months so in many ways uh, in, in many ways I essentially did the time by myself you know and uh, you know so no they did not coalesce afterwards it was just the same type of uh, thing as as before
0: you know which I find really sad and surprising and what I found really sad in your in your documentary you mentioned that you were putting ads in the local sacramento paper looking for pen pals because you were so lonely and so bored i i mean that is just sad and i i i uh i was moved by that
1: hmm. yeah it, it no i it definitely is very it definitely was very it definitely was very sad but i want to say that you know in a cosmic kaleidoscopic type of way uh my pen pal arrived just in time because i mean i i he showed up like in my he responded to the ad and and, in the paper we corresponded for about a year and i I was pretty much at the end of my rope i mean i was like i was openly asking him look do you think i should just quit just stop fighting you know should i just kill myself and just be done with all this i'm never going to get out of here you know and uh you know he gave me the moral support that uh that i needed and you know we you know and then we chit-chatted about some you know sports and other stuff so it was kind of a, a distraction but uh and I, I wrote him like two or three times a week i mean i was at the end of my rope and you know i fear that you know maybe i may have tried to do something foolish had he not had he not arrived but it does go to the matter of you know my being lonely am i essentially doing the time by myself i mean otherwise i wouldn't need to resort to you know placing an ad for a pen pal I'd have regular contact from family members or uh, or friends, but you know that wasn't what my reality was.
0: I mean, it sure sounded like your family basically abandoned you.
1: Yeah, uh, I feel like in a lot of ways that that's true.
0: And then you get out, and mm-hmm. you know, you 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 were you filed some lawsuits. Um, you were compensated very well, several yes. million dollars. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, in verdicts and settlements uh, for the wrongful conviction. Um, and and then you decided to go to law school.
1: Yes, yeah, yeah. So I took, so it took about five years to be compensated. It was extremely difficult living uh, up until that point. I mean, I lacked stability of housing. I bounced around from place to place. I nearly went to you a know, homeless shelter. I was always passed over for gainful employment. Um, I had to deal with the psychological after effects of my experience, there was the stigma. You know, um, you've been in prison wrongfully, yes, but you've been incarcerated for 16 years. How much that rubbed off on you? Culture, technology was all different. It was uh, difficult building a social situation. But while I was uh, while that was happening, I was also doing a lot of advocacy work. I was speaking, I was writing for a new weekly paper. I was doing media interviews and meeting with elected officials. I got a scholarship, I finished a bachelor's degree. Um, I got a master's degree. My thesis was written on wrongful conviction cause and reform. And when I was compensated, I decided to start uh, Jeffrey Deskovic Foundation for Justice. Uh, so because I wanted to be able to help free people who are uh, who were who were wrongfully imprisoned and you know, continue to pursue the policy changes. So at some point, it became not enough for me to sit in the front room, the front row in the courtroom. I wanted to be able to sit at the defense table and I wanted to be able to uh, represent some of the clients and you know, in pursuit of that dream of exonerating others as an attorney. And so I did go to law school and as of October 26th, I was officially admitted to the bar. What year? This year in 2020.
0: Congratulations. Thank you. What a great cherry on top of this ice cream cone. I mean, I I love that you did that and, and, and you went to law school. How did you find law school?
1: Uh, yeah, you know, it was a mixed bag. I mean, I, I, I think overall I enjoyed it. Um, you know, look, I, I love the com, I like, I love the camaraderie. I love the fact that I, I'm someone who believes in chasing dreams and, you know, to, to be an attorney was chasing for the purpose I mentioned, that was a dream. And I did want to be an attorney when I was a, a kid as well. So in multiple ways pursuing the dream. Uh, on the other hand, though, I mean, law school was very difficult uh you know uh everything rides on one test the final i was always pulling my hair out i was always afraid i was going to fail everything i essentially worked a job full-time i didn't slow the advocacy work down of speaking or doing media and meeting with electives or even traveling to other states in connection with advocacy but i the level of opportunities increased and so i don't like leaving opportunities not pursued so i was often learning Four to five classes worth of material in six to seven weeks, so that was kind of a high pressure situation. Um, at the same time, though, uh, like I kind of left my imprint on the school. I mean, I or, I coordinated and organized and spoke at quite a bit of wrongful conviction events on on uh, on, on campus. And uh, sometimes I would come into class and I'd sit down. The professor takes attendance and he starts um, teaching about one thing or another, and then he's going to he stops and calls me up and you know, he wants me to speak about, you know, false confessions. And I got to sit back down again. He's going to go over case law in a different area. Uh, one of the prisoners rights class was, um, was a lot of fun because the professor would cover the, you know, would explain things about the prison, go over case law. And then he would call on me, well, is this the way it really is in real life? Uh, so, uh, I, I kind of, um, you know, I, I so I kind of enjoyed that and a similar experience in terms of, uh, It was called criminal procedure investigation, like in in New York. So different rules of evidence pertaining to identification and and um, and interrogation. So in a lot of ways, I had a blast with it, you know, except that it was such a highly pressurized thing, and I really hated being chained to a classroom, you know. Whereas, I mean, the real the real action was in the field doing advocacy work. So
0: you started this amazing foundation, uh, the Jeffrey Deskovic
1: Justice foundation the Jeffrey Duskovic Foundation for Justice. Thank you. Mm-hmm.
0: And we'll have all the links uh, under your bio so people can find out more. I've gone to your website. Great website, very informative. You have helped free nine people for various for, for various reasons, couple exoneries and other things, which is yes. amazing. You know, Jeffrey, what I'm, I'm 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 watching this you have millions of dollars. You were treated completely unfair, and you know you're not bitter. You're not flying off to an island and building a mansion. You're helping others who are in the same position. And I can't tell you how shocking and surprising and um, exciting it, it is watching your story. Um, I'm blown away by you, man. I'm just blown away that you're taking this money and you're going to law school and you're helping people. Um, like, what motivates... I, mean, I know it motivates you. I don't even know the question to ask you. I just, I'm blown away. So, I, like, thank you for what you're doing for these people. They have got to be elated that they have somebody who really understands it. Yes, uh, they are. And, and taking their money and helping them Selflessly, um, what is it about you that's letting you do this, making you do this?
1: I, my purpose, and I believe that my purpose in the world is to fight wrongful conviction, and you know, and, and for justice reform, and you know, and uh, that that's really what that's really what allows me to do that. And you know, I feel like I've had educational opportunities and other opportunities along the way that a lot of other people don't have, and you know, and so I feel a strong I, I feel like a strong uh, moral uh, moral sense of obligation in that in that way. Uh, so really, that's really what that's what allows me to to do that. And I think that because of the circumstances of my life that you know I, I do have the chance to uh, be an agent of change that that probably wouldn't probably wouldn't uh, exist if I hadn't gone through that everything that I did. So I, uh, I look at it that way. And uh, look, I need it, I need it, I need some silver lining out of all this, Mike. Okay. I need I need my suffering to count for something. So we gotta make the system, you know, more accurate. And, you know, I, I've gotta help other people and prevent this. So if I can do that, then I can take some solace in that uh, there's some aspect of it that, you know, I am looking to try to build a legacy and you know, just leave the world a little bit better than than how I how I found it. And so all of those um interrelated reasons are all factors that go into it. And, you know, I think that the reason why I'm not angry and bitter is, you know, is, look, I want to enjoy my life as much as I can. I don't think I can do that if I'm angry or bitter. Uh, it's not like I would be you know, adversely affecting people if I was angry or bitter. And I feel like I lost so much. Why would I want to, in effect, lose the rest of my life? And the vehicle that allows me to actualize that is I take that energy that I feel and I uh, channel it into the uh, advocacy work that I do.
0: It, it's, it's, it's truly amazing. And you're not just helping nine or 10 people right now. You're also trying to get policy changes and laws changed. What kind of traction have you gotten there? What kind of change have you been able to make?
1: Yeah, quite a bit of traction. So, uh, in, so in New York, we were able to um, help pass a law that mandated uh, police videotaping interrogation. Um, identification reform, uh, DNA database expansion. Uh, then as an advisory board member of the coalition group, it, it could happen to you, which the foundation is part of. We were able to pass uh, three additional laws in New York. So oversight uh, for prosecutors, uh, a tweak of that law and, and then discovery reform. So now uh, both sides can have access to the same information. And we now have chapters, the coalition group, again, which the foundation is part of, I'm an advisory board member of, in fact, myself, the founder and one other person are the only three people that are active in all three chapters. We have chapters in Pennsylvania and California. So another legislative victory that we recently got in Pennsylvania was uh, automatic expungement. So people that have been exonerated or, or have been acquitted or had charges dismissed against them, their records are automatically uh, cleared now uh in terms of what we're working on now so we're trying to repass that commission on prosecutor conduct in new york uh the new, york, the, new the uh district attorney's association of new york uh, not wanting to have any oversight uh they brought a lawsuit against the law and they made a bunch of arguments that it was um, uh, unconstitutional uh the judge rejected all their arguments but found a problem in the appeal procedure so the whole statute Uh, was declared unconstitutional. So we're trying to repass that, making the tweak that the judge referenced. So we're working on that. And another thing we're working on in New York is to, uh, there's exceptions in that law that mandated videotaping interrogation. So they've made exceptions for sex offenses, uh, murder cases, and um, drug, drug offenses. So we're trying to get rid of those exceptions. In Pennsylvania, we're working on, again, the Commission on Prosecutor Conduct and and exonerate compensation so Pennsylvania is one of 15 states that does not offer compensation in California we're working on again passing the commission of prosecutor conduct and we're trying to eliminate uh capital punishment so those are the policy reforms that we're working on now
0: what's that what kind of team do you have working with you on all this important stuff
1: <laughs> I have a part-time policy director who, uh, of the foundation who had started the bigger coalition, and and uh, we have a bunch of volunteers. But you know that's also why you know we're trying to raise money. We're looking for donors. We're looking to add uh, add board members because uh, look, if we could get these kind of results, you know, on a shoestring budget. I mean, imagine if we were really armed for bear. If we really had you know attorneys, investigators, um, paralegals, other essential personnel you know, on staff, imagine if I had, you know, was able to make the part-time policy person full-time, imagine what kind of results we would actually be able to get, you know? So, um, you know, I'm trying to, you know, so I have a whole plan put together, a, a budget and, you know, our points of progress and our outcomes and just hoping, you know, to at some point reach people, you know, that are willing to help in, in, in one way or another because um, we could be a lot even more effective than, than what we are. But I think we have a proven track record of success we're the only organization started by somebody who, you know, was exonerated uh, using some of their compensation that works to, you know, free people. Um, that That's one way we differentiate ourselves. Another way is uh, most of the organizations in the field, they only take on DNA cases. DNA is only available in five to 12% of all serious felony cases. So we take on both DNA and non-DNA cases. And as it's turned out, you know, only two of the cases we're working on involve, uh, in, in, involved DNA. And and in terms of, you know, policy issues, you know, when um, we're not, I'm not, we take on issues that other organizations like privately agree with us, but don't like pursue. So for example, um, the way the Department of Corrections and, 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 and even the Parole Board, I mean, they, the way the Department of Corrections administers uh, the sex offender training program, for example, right, which people who are convicted of sex offenses are required to uh, complete, the Parole Board wants to see them finishing that. So there's a guilt admission requirement tied to that. It's like at the parole board, they want you to uh, express remorse and you know take responsibility and not say you're innocent. So in referencing the narratives of exonere cases, the other organizations reference these issues, but they're not pursuing them as policy issues. You know the foundation is so I'm not I'm not worried about stepping on you know people's toes or you know and anything like that. So those are all you know differentiations.
0: It's unbelievable. The one thing that that you know, when people hear these stories, they ask me about what are they asking about immunity? Yes. You know, where where are we at in this country with stopping protecting judges, bad prosecutors, and bad cops from from doing all the dirty tactics that they did to convict someone like you and my other friends who I've interviewed on Open Mic? Where are the laws? Is there any movement to try to hold these people accountable?
1: Well, there's a commission on prosecutor conduct, which, which I mentioned I'm working on and that, you know, that's, um, that's like, that would be an independent oversight board to invest that would have subpoena power and have the authority to investigate allegations of prosecutorial um, misconduct. So we're trying to pass those, but that's just one aspect of it. Um, As you referenced, prosecutorial immunity is, is a huge problem. Uh, So, any misconduct that a prosecutor does. I mean, they could threaten witnesses. uh, They could withhold evidence of innocence uh, as as examples. And if they do that after an arrest has been made, then they have uh, immunity for it. So you would not be able to sue them. Uh, So I think that people are talking about immunity. Um, I I think that that's the first step towards doing it, but we're at the infancy of that. And it's not like there's any bills circulating around in terms of that. Uh, California did criminalize, withholding evidence of innocence, making it any felony. But as far as I know, nobody has been, um, nobody's ever actually been prosecuted uh, 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 from that. So I think that criminalizing clear cut intentional prosecutorial misconduct would be, you know, another thing that would be, that would be deterrent, you know, that would be a a deterrent. You know, judges often get away with making rulings that are, you know, against, against case law. And as you alluded to, you know, the whole, um, the whole, uh, um, now now the first word of it, uh, there's an immunity that cops have, I mean, not in terms of wrongful conviction. Uh, um, I'm trying to remember the first word in front of the word immunity, but basically it means that it doesn't matter how egregious a uh, constitutional right violation was, if nobody's ever been held, uh, if no one's ever been uh, held accountable for it before in a similar circumstance, then the Cops are able to get away with it, and the judicial reasoning on that as well. They haven't been; the defendants haven't been, uh, you know, duly informed that, you know, that they could be held accountable for that. But in doing that, what happened? The end. The net result is that the law is frozen in time. It just, if just no one's gotten, if no one's gotten uh, sued before for a constitutional violation, then they can just people can just keep getting away with it. And so there's a the frozen in time. But more importantly, people who are Whose rights are being violated, you know, they have no legal redress.
0: Well, I'm hoping that uh, someone like you gets these laws in our country fixed, that the that the bad cops and the bad prosecutors will be held accountable for doing the stuff that they did to you and, and so many other people that we're finding out, uh, finding out about. Yes. So, you know, last question. And How are you, you know, my, my, my listener, listeners and viewers are going to want to know, how is your life these days um how is jeffrey deskovic doing now
1: yeah i would say i'm, I'm i would say that i'm doing well you know I, i've you know i did uh i feel like i'm in a much better place uh you know psychologically uh, mentally i the more time goes by the more grounded to the world i am the more i learn technology the more tied into the world uh, i definitely have benefited from doing um, a lot of um, receiving a lot of treatment mental health wise and dealing with the psychological after effects you know, um, I'm trying to be a little bit more balanced. You know, I do enjoy, I do enjoy playing chess. I like going to new places, you know, uh, new new places, new experiences, new activities. I like trying, I like trying new food. Uh, you know, I like going to sporting events. So, uh, you know, and I'm slowly starting to build, uh, you know, a small um, social circle. So I think all those things are positive developments as I just try to, you know, Put together my, my my entire life, and I do feel like you know, all the advocacy work that I do is definitely cathartic and healing. So,
0: did you like the show The Queen's Gambit?
1: I did. I, I yeah yes I really yes I really I really did. I mean, you know, so, so when people get their starts in in chess at from unusual places, let's just say, let's just put it that way. Yeah, but uh, my
0: eight-year-old daughter watched it. Now she's we're playing online together. Oh, and, wow. Uh, so it, it's really an amazing uh, uh, show. What is the Queen's Gambit? Do you use that in your game?
1: It's, a, it's, an, it's an, the Queen's Gambit is a reference to a, a certain opening, you know, openings in chess being the first um, five to 15 moves, you know, they're kind of preset, you know, and there's only so many ways people can answer it. And if you really know the opening, you know that uh, you not only know those initial moves, but you also know all the different possible responses, to those moves, and you know what your counters to those responses are 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 uh, are supposed to be. Uh, I usually play the French Defense as my uh, as my opening rather than the, rather than the Queen's Gambit, but I have played against the Queen's Gambit um, before.
0: Well, I hope to one day meet you, Jeffrey, and and play chess with you and get to know you. I'm I'm really happy for you. I'm I'm blown away by your story. Thank you for being on Open Mike. Thank you for all the work you do. i um, I'm I'm so sorry for those 16 years that you had was it 16
1: yes it is 16 yes
0: 16 horrible years that you didn't deserve um your story's heartbreaking i hope that uh, lots of people watch and listen to this podcast episode check out his website check out the movies um donate money help jeffrey deskovic and his foundation and um you're a real gem, and uh, congratulations this year on becoming a lawyer and joining, joining the club. I know you're going to do amazing things.
1: Thank you very much. Thank you for having me as well.
0: Nice to meet you.
1: Thank you. Same here.
0: Thank you for watching this episode of Open Mic with Jeffrey Deskovic. An amazing story. I was moved. I hope you were moved. Share this with people. Share this with someone who needs to hear from Jeffrey and the amazing work. Go check out his Amazon Prime documentary. It gave me chills. It made me really sad. Check out his website. Donate some money if you can. Subscribe to the Open Mic Podcast. Comment below on things that you'd like to hear about and have us do in the future. And You know, we have to talk about these people who are being wrongfully convicted, spending 16 years, starting at 17 years old. This story blew my mind. Anyway, thanks for being here. Thanks for watching. Thanks for supporting Open Mic.